Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are going to be in the book, or the letter of, I should say, the letter of Philemon. If you have a table of contents in your Bible, you are welcome to use your table of contents. It is only 25 verses long, so most of your Bibles, it's probably only going to cover one page. So it's one of those things that as you're flipping through your Bible, it can be easy to miss. But if you get to Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation, you've gone too far, you need to go back to your left. So we are going to be in the letter of Philemon. We are coming close to the end. We started in Genesis and... And every Wednesday night, we've been looking at a different book of the Bible. And so sometimes you just touched on at the very, very skimming as far as some of the books, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or the book of Exodus, and you didn't get very much in there because we were intentionally covering a different book. That way, the idea and the hope is that we have kind of a general idea of the books in the Bible, who they're written from, who they're written to, when they're written, why they're written, maybe some key points out of the book, and to kind of get Give us a survey of the Bible in its entirety. So, we've been walking through, like I said, starting in Genesis, and now we are in Philemon. So, we are coming close to the last two thirds of these books. So, we find ourselves in the letter of Philemon tonight. And I'm going to do it a little differently. Instead of starting with who wrote it, who they wrote it to, when they wrote it, maybe a little bit of the background. I'm just going to read the first. I'm just going to read the 25 verses. So, the entire letter of Philemon, it's 25 verses. I'm just going to read it. Just so you kind of get a feel. Um, some of these are not really short enough that you can read them in their entirety in a setting without going for hours and hours and hours. So we'll read these 25 verses and then we're just going to start back up in verse 1 and uh, try to work through some of the background and some of the high points of this letter named Philemon. So your translation might be a little different than mine, but uh, my copy of God's Word starts in verse 1 and says, Paul... A prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker and Apaphia, our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I... Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus or for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For 
For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, Brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And one of the dangers that you can come into when you have a letter like this with only 25 verses that you might hear well-intentioned, well-meaning, well-thought-of preachers, teachers that will come in and because there's only 25 verses, they will start to add or fill in the blanks. And sometimes you'll hear sermons and they will talk about forgiveness and it'll be based out of the letter of Philemon. And you'll hear preachers or teachers and they will say, well, we think this or we think that. And they start to try to uh, fill in the gaps to make the content last the same amount of time. I have heard sermons. In fact, for a class in seminary, I had to write a 15-page research paper on this letter. There's only so many ways that you can say the same thing over and over and over. So what my aim is, and what my desire is, is to not to chase the rabbits and try to say, well, we think this, or we infer that, or we assume this, but really just to see what the letter says. And we can also use it in relation to the other letters that Paul wrote to give us some background or maybe some peripheral information. And just to ask ourselves a question, then what is this letter about? Well, it starts off with Paul there in verse 1, and he is identified as the author of the letter. And he is writing to a man by the name of Philemon. Now, it doesn't tell us in this letter where Philemon was, but if you go back to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and you can look at some of the uh, geography that is listed, you can look at some of the names that are listed and some of the timing that are listed, what you can do is you can overlay it and realize that Philemon was a citizen or lived in the city of Colossae. Now, if you think back to several weeks ago when we were talking about the letter of Paul to the Colossians there in Colossae, Remember we talked about the Colossae was a city about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus was there, one of the port cities on the Aegean Sea and the North Mediterranean Sea. And 100 miles east was Colossae. And one of the things that we don't see anywhere in Scripture is that Paul ever visited Colossae. He spent over...
over three years in Ephesus, but he never, that we have record of, never visited Colossae. And rather, we talked about, when we were in the book of the letter of Colossians, how we, uh, the scholars and even some of the language there in those letters indicate that Epaphras was there in Ephesus, heard the gospel, was influenced, impacted, and discipled by Paul, and then left Ephesus and went to Colossae, where at Colossae he told other people about Jesus, other people got saved, and a church was birthed. So, coming back to Philemon, we understand that he is a citizen of Colossae. We understand that Epaphras, if you look down there uh, in verse 23, it talks about Epaphras, but doesn't give us any indication that Epaphras is with him. Rather, the thought is, the possibility is that Epaphras, yes, went back to Colossae, yes, started the church, but now Epaphras was assisting Paul in the various areas of ministry, and he was actually traveling with Paul, like Titus, like Timothy, like Luke, and like others were from time to time. And it was Philemon who, in Philemon's house, the church met. Where do we get that from? We get that from verse 2. He says, and the church in your house. Now, we really don't know exactly who Epiph- uh, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, or Archippus, some people think that may have been Philemon's wife, and that may have been Philemon's son. I'm just going to tell you what maybe some people think as far as trying to place them. I don't want to tell you that's what it was, because we don't know exactly what it was. But we do know that the church there in Colossae was meeting in the house of Philemon. So based upon the context and based upon the culture, we can safely maybe guess that Philemon was probably a little bit wealthy. He had to have a big enough house for a group to meet in his house. He had to have a big enough home where he had bond servants. He talks about that later on in the letter, that Onesimus was one of the bond servants of Philemon. So the man um, not only had maybe the means, he hosted the church in his house, and frankly speaking, he was a slave owner. Now that gets really touchy, especially in our culture today, about slavery, biblical slavery. And you will hear people talk about the difference between chattel slavery. That was back in the 1800s versus biblical slavery. You could even go back and look at how the bond servant worked and the wording was and what a bond servant is versus a difference of a slave. In that culture, you had different levels of service. You had some people that could not um, earn their own living. They could not provide for themselves. So they would go, I would go to Mr. Ron and I would say, Ron, I can't provide for myself. Can I come and pretty much be your live-in butler and you will feed me, house me, clothe me, take care of me and I'll just be your bond servant. And some, sometimes you had situations like that. Sometimes you may have a situation that I owed Mr. Wayne a large amount of money that I couldn't pay. And Mr. Wayne says, alright, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to be you're going to be my bond servant until you pay your debt and then you will be released. There was others that were bought and there was other scenarios and situations but that setting to try to draw the comparison between a biblical setting of a servant or a bond servant and the cultural setting in the 1800s of the slavery that happened on the immigration from Africa etc. It's kind of like you're comparing apples and lemons. Not exactly the same thing. 
But we do know that Philemon had enough standing in the community that he had his own bond servants. And in my mind, the way I think about it is Jalen and I, we got a six bond servants. <laughs> had somebody ask me today. They said, well, how, how's the little one doing? And I said, well, he's not doing the dishes yet. So, so we still have, we still, we still got room to go. But that's kind of what you think about it. You're housing them, you're caring for them, and they're pretty much, they do anything you ask, well, they're supposed to do anything you ask them to, and uh, they are kind of at your disposal to use, but then there's also the relationship where you are caring and taking care for them. So, what we think, based upon the, how the letter is constructed, is that was the scenario. Onesimus was considered to be a bond servant of Philemon. Now this is where it starts to get a little bit tricky. And this is where some people start to fill in the blanks. Because the story may, you may hear one person, they may, they may take a certain route and they may say that Onesimus was a bondservant of Philemon and he stole a bunch of goods from the house of Philemon and took off to Rome. And then he went to Rome and he hid out in Rome thinking he was a free man. And somewhere in Rome, big town, big place, he runs into Paul. While he runs into Paul, he hears about Jesus, gets saved, and in their conversation and catches up and figuring out who's who, Onesimus admits to Paul that, hey, I used to be a bondservant in Colossae. Oh, really? Yeah, I was a bondservant, a guy named Philemon. And Paul goes, I know Philemon because I've heard about Philemon through Epaphras. Some, some people may take a different path and say that Onesimus was a bondservant of Philemon and he did not steal anything or take anything. Rather, he committed some type of a crime, some type of an act of violence or some type of an act of aggression. And then, fearing the repercussions or the consequences that would come, he took off. And he couldn't stay around Colossae because they knew, you're a bondservant, go back to the person that you're supposed to be serving. So he didn't want to stay there, so he took off to Rome where he could hide. And then the same story follows through, that he gets with Paul and all that stuff gets exposed. Another strain of thought is that Onesimus was under the care of Philemon and somewhere in the midst of it, he just like, I don't want to do what this guy asked me to do anymore. I'm out. I'm leaving. And he takes off and now he's in the city. We don't know exactly what the grievance was. And so I don't want you to hear, well, this is what happened, because it doesn't say what happened. But it does tell us that Paul is writing a letter. He is writing it to Philemon. We date this letter around 60 to 62 AD. Why? Because we think it was written about the same time as Colossians and Ephesians because this letter as well as Colossians and Ephesians were actually carried from Paul by a guy by the name of Tychicus and Onesimus. So Paul is there in Rome. We think he wrote um, Ephesians, Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. He hands them to Tychicus and Onesimus and says, I want you to go to Ephesus and deliver the letter to the church. And then you'll keep going west to Colossae and you'll deliver the letter to the church. And then I want you to go and I want you to give this letter to Philemon. So then what do we take from the letter? So we know who wrote it. We know who it's written to. We have a kind of a guess about what, when it was written. But what is the letter actually about? 
Now, we already read it, so I'm not trying to insult your intelligence as far as saying, well, I know what the letter's about. But let's just, let's just maybe peel back for a few moments and look at just a few aspects of what this letter is about. The, the majority of the time, if you look up on Sermon Source or Sermon Audio or other websites or you just search for Adrian Rogers' sermons on Philemon, many times it's going to be centered around forgiveness. It's about what are we supposed to do, how we're supposed to give, forgive people. And I'm not saying that those people are wrong. I'm just saying that the word forgiveness is never in the letter. So what's in the letter? There's just several things that I want you to consider with me that I think are takeaways for us tonight. First thing I want you to consider with me in verse 4 through verse 7, Paul reminds Philemon who he is. So by extension for us here tonight, I think there's a good example for us to look at that reminds us of who we are. So you might think of it, and sometimes people talk about rhetoric, and it's the way that you talk to people, and sometimes people will tell you, oh, you know what, you're doing such a good job, and you're such an awesome person, you're doing so well, but, and then they'll talk about the negative. Sometimes people will talk about the negative, and then but, and then talk about the positive. Some people will do positive, negative, positive. Sometimes they'll swap it. And so you have different styles of speaking on how you address it. Here, they are saying that the way that Paul is constructing this, the the scholars, the Bible scholars say the way that he's constructing it is the way that you would speak to someone of wealth or means. I don't know. You know, people are getting paid to write books about the Bible. So I don't know if that's the way that Paul had in mind, but what does Paul do? Paul starts with, you might look at it and say, well, Paul's just buttering him up. Paul's just kind of smoozing on him. Or you can look at it and say, Paul is reminding Onesimus, or Paul is reminding Philemon who he is. So he says, we thank God always because, this is verse 5, I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Verse 7. For I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He is saying, Philemon, I am so grateful for who you are for the kingdom of God and what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you, how you have been redeemed, how you've been restored, how you've been reconciled back to Christ. I'm just so grateful for your testimony and your faithfulness to God. He's reminding Philemon, remember who you are In the kingdom of God. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves who we are in the kingdom of God. Because sometimes, sometimes people make you mad, sometimes people make you angry, sometimes people make you sarcastic, sometimes people tempt you, sometimes people will ride on you, sometimes people will try to gouge on you and get your goat, sometimes people will tease you about sorority, sometimes people do all kinds of things. Sometimes you just got to remember, who am I? Because my identity in this world does not define me. It's my identity in Christ. And my identity in the kingdom of God. And so when the time comes to interact with people in this world, I need to remember who I am. I didn't remember who I represent. I didn't remember who I am a part of whenever I was in the military. You had several things. On your left shoulder, you carried a patch. It didn't matter what uniform you were in, you had a patch. And that patch 
patch represented the group, the division, or whoever you were affiliated with. So by looking at a person's left shoulder, at least this is the way it used to be. I don't know, now they got all high tech. But used to, you could look at their left shoulder and be able to identify that that person is with this group of soldiers. That patch is with a different group of soldiers. And then, on your right shoulder, you would have another patch if you had served for a period of time in a combat zone. And so sometimes you would see people, whether they're in their field uniform or they're in their dress uniform, and the patch would say, this is who I'm with now. And this patch would say that during a time of conflict or a time of war, this is who I was with. But regardless of which patch, they identify who you are. And then on the front, you would have a ribbon above your pocket. And it would say U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Mar- well, I don't, maybe Marines. I don't know if they can spell that many letters. But they, they would have all kinds of stuff on there, okay? And that would identify. So when you see a soldier and they had some type of uniform on, you could tell whether that person was intelligent or not and then you could tell okay so that person is the army and I can tell who that person is affiliated with and there are certain patches that have certain amount of prominence and so you will have certain patches that you can just recognize and say I know what that patch is you don't have to tell me because it has a lot of prominence it has a popularity you see the screaming eagles you know that's the 82nd airborne division you see the big red one you know that is the 1st infantry division out of Fort Riley Kansas there are just certain ones that you can identify and say I know who that is. Well, I think what Paul is doing is he is coming to Philemon and he is saying, Philemon, remember who you are. Remember what you are and remember who you are in Christ. Why does that matter? Well, because there is an issue. We don't know exactly the circumstance. We don't know exactly the situation. But at some point, Philemon, there in Colossae, had a servant by the name of Onesimus. And at some point, Onesimus left. Whether he stole, whether he committed a crime, whether he fronged or defrauded, we don't even know exactly what happened, but at some point he left. Now that was a big deal. That was a big deal. To the point that if Philemon had caught Onesimus, Philemon had the right, according to Roman law, to have Onesimus killed. He had the authority to do whatever he wanted to with the life of Onesimus when Onesimus abandoned him and left him in that way. So whatever it was, it must have been severe enough that Onesimus says, I'm willing to risk my life to get away from this individual. So at the crutch of the argument is, Paul wants to first remind Philemon, remember who you are. And then he's starting in verse 8, and all the way down, I just, I slice it out. You may slice it different. I slice it out at verse 8 through 16. He reminds us, Paul reminds Philemon of who Onesimus is. And by extension, he reminds us, I put down here in my notes, who they are. Now, I put they, I know that's a bit, bit generic, but they could be anybody. Anybody that you feel has wronged you. Anybody that you feel has mistreated you. Anybody that you feel has overlooked you? Anybody that you feel that has offended you? He uses language here that he is appealing for Onesimus. That is in verse 10. And he says, I understand that there's a division. I understand there's separation. I understand that there is conflict. I understand there are hard feelings that are there. And I understand, as Paul is writing here to Philemon, he understands that Onesimus is his 
bond servant. So Paul is not making light of it and saying Onesimus hasn't done anything wrong. He's not making light of it and saying Onesimus made a mistake and you should just forget about it. He is just saying that yes, Onesimus is in the wrong, but let me remind you that God has changed him. You know, a lot of times we, we carry around grudges that we don't have to carry. We carry around bitterness that we don't have to carry. And sometimes we go around thinking that we are going to right a right and make a wrong right. We think that we are going to justify ourselves and we're going to do our own thing. Monday afternoon, I was pulling out of a lease road and I had pulled up past the gate and I had shut the gate and I was, oh, maybe 20 feet past the gate and I was catching up on a couple of text messages and the landowner, his son, came in driving a a pickup truck and had a trailer on it with some feed on the trailer. As he's coming in, he's going past me, he starts cussing at me about me being in the blank, blank way and why don't I get the blank, blank out of his way and blank, blah, 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 blah. So I pulled up out of the way. He pulled up to the gate behind me and he gets out of the truck. And he proceeds to tell me that I better get the blank, blank off that property. I better get, I better run. I don't have any right to be there. And if I don't leave right now, he's going to come over the truck and he's going to pull me out of the truck and blah, 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 blah. Now I know you ladies never have this issue. But you men, but you men might identify a little spot inside of you. A little spot that says, what'd you say? Are you talking to me? Not only do I have a 24-inch pipe wrench, I've also got a personal protection device made by Smith & Wesson. And I am legally right where I'm allowed to be I have done nothing wrong. I have said nothing to you. I am not in the wrong at all. And how dare you think that you're going to talk to me in this way? And there's something I think maybe, I I just assume you women are too sweet, innocent, that that doesn't happen. But there's something inside a guy that kind of builds up and you're thinking, should I back up? Should I get out of the truck? I had a lot of options, Harold. I had a lot of options. But you start thinking about those, some of these things. And then you start thinking about why. why. Why am I wanting to react? He hasn't touched me. He can't take away my birthday. It's against the law to eat me. It doesn't matter what he does, I'm still going to heaven. He hasn't approached the truck, and I sat there and I was watching out of my mirrors, waiting to see if he had approached. He never approached the truck. All he did was sit back over there and holler and scream and yell. I don't know. I don't know exactly what was going on in his life. Obviously, he didn't like me and didn't really care for my presence. And that's fine. He's not the only one or the first one. But you got to ask yourselves the question exactly what am I getting agitated about? What am I getting frustrated about? Sometimes you have to ask yourself, and what is what I'm getting fired up about really worth the trouble? So Paul is writing to Philemon, 
And he says, Paul, or Paul is writing, and he says, Philemon, I understand that Onesimus is your bondservant. And I understand that he left you, and I understand that you would have every right to have him killed. I understand that you would be perfectly uh, justified in being upset and being mad and being aggravated. But Philemon, what I want you to consider is who you are in Christ. And I want to tell you about the beautiful story about what God has done with Onesimus. And it tells you, it lays it out there about Onesimus runs into Paul and becomes a child. That is verse 10. And then he is very near to his heart. That is verse 13. And Paul goes in to say, you know what, this man Onesimus, he might have been a runaway slave. He might have been somebody that wronged you. He might have been someone that did you wrong. But I want you to know now what God has done in his life. And now Philemon has a choice. Either he is going to be stuck thinking about who he was, or he's going to accept who he is now in Christ. And who delivered this to Philemon? Tychicus and Onesimus. So Onesimus is one of the ones, is himself. He's one of the ones bringing the letter back to his... And Paul was in prison? Paul was in prison in Rome. Yes. And so, Philemon was. So he hand delivered the letter. He delivered the letter to Philemon. Yes, sir. He's handing this letter before Philemon even knows what's in this letter. That. Looking at him like, what are you doing? You're my boss. Yeah. And see, that's where it's tempting to start adding in, like Sunday school lessons of flannel graph. It start, it's tempting to start filling gaps. Because I don't know. I don't know if it's one of those things that I, Onesimus, like, you know, wrapped the letter around a rock and threw it over the wall, you know, and let Philemon read it work first. I don't know if there was like a carrier pigeon. I don't know if, I, you know, Onesimus got up to the gate and handed it to the, one of the servants and said, here, you take it to him. And then if he's happy about it, then he'll let me in. We don't know. Or it could have been Onesimus went straight up to Philemon, I am sorry, I am wrong, I'm, Paul sent me to come back to you, here is a letter from Paul. That would be the Christian thing to do. Yes. But I think it's fascinating just to imagine what it must have been like. I think it's fascinating to imagine what it must have looked like. So Paul is reminding Philemon, hey, I want to remind you that yes, this is who Onesimus was, but now this is who Onesimus is today. So then you get down to verse 21, and Paul kind of brings this and wraps this up. And I find this language so... I laugh at this language. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I realize that we look at that and we're like, oh, Paul's writing this letter. It may be three or four months before Philemon ever gets it. And he puts in the letter to Philemon, you know what? I don't have to have any doubts. I know you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. I don't have any doubt whatsoever. And I just find that humorous that Paul... I find that humorous that Paul had that much assurance that he had that much clout and that much authority and that much weight that whatever he said to do was going to be done. So he says, confident of your obedience. We're right now in that season where... Micah is not in Jaylene and I's room because he got booted because there's another one that came along. 
so Micah is in a, a different room and he's in a crib. And so every night you lay him down and my, my spill is the same thing every night. I don't tell them they have to go to sleep because you tell a bunch of boys they have to go to sleep and they just look at you like, we're not tired, we're not going to sleep. So I tell them the same thing every night. Lay down, be still, and be quiet. I don't care if you go to sleep or not, but you're going to lay down, be still, and be quiet. And every night, I cover up Micah and I tell him, lay down, be still, and be quiet. And you may say, well, he's only two, he doesn't understand. We've been doing this long enough, he knows what's expected. So I lay down, be still, and be quiet. And you have all of the hope. (laughs) You have all the hope in the world, and then you leave the room. Now, I've got two other spies that are in the room. Oh, no. oh, yes. Yes. And I have a whistle. So if I am anywhere throughout the house and I hear, that means Micah is up. Now, they learn this really fast, Miss Carol. You'd be surprised how, how fast these little black-hearted sinners learn how to figure this out. Because now Micah has got to the point, when he hears the whistle, he knows Dad's coming. And so he's laid down, face down in his crib, with his hands like this. <laughs> he's laying still, he's being quiet, and he's just got there with his hands over... <laughs> So he, he, even at, he's not even two years old yet. He won't be two later in another week or so. So he's already got this figured out, right? So I've got my spies in there. And as soon as he gets up and move around, you hear the whistle. You're like, okay, now i got to go in there. My point is, is when I lay him down to begin with, I've got all the hope in the world that they're going to not get up. They're going to lay there. They're going to be quiet. And they're going to be still. And I have all the hope, but I, have, I haven't got the confidence <laughs> that they're going to do this. I have hope, but I don't have confidence. And yet when I... That they have learned it yet. Oh, they've learned it yet. (laughs) The the, the problem is, is they know what daddy wants and they know what they want. And the fear of dad has not overpowered the desires of themselves. Because they know what dad wants. It's just, we're not that scared of dad yet. And some of you very sweet ladies, you think, oh, you can't, you can't punish the child or discipline the child. Oh, yes, you can. Well, <laughs> either you're going to discipline at two or the society's going to have to discipline at 20. It's whichever way we want to do it. So, but I, I don't have any confidence. So when I come to verse 21 and Paul is writing, now you th- consider the context. We don't, we don't have any reason to assume that... Paul has ever necessarily met, finally met in person. We think there may have been a connection. There may have been some type of association. Could have been. Paul is not there in Colossae. Paul is actually in Rome in prison. And so as he's writing this letter, he writes and says, I don't have to have hope. I don't have to have belief. I don't have to say please. I am confident you're going to do what I'm asking you. And he didn't ask the guy to give him a $5 bill. He didn't ask the guy to give him 50 cents. He didn't ask the guy to give him a job. He said, this guy took off. There was some division, some separation, and now I want you to accept him back. And not just accept him back and say, you're in trouble. I'm going to give you detention. Slap you on the hand, whatever. I want you to take him back and not just as a bondservant. Take him back as a brother. And Paul says, confident of your obedience. So this is where this hits me. How confident is Christ in 
me that I will forgive the people that He has forgiven. Because when Paul is writing, he doesn't say the word forgiveness, but he does say receive Him back. Some type of reconciliation is going to take place. Some type of connection is going to be reestablished. And Paul is able to say, because of the character of Philemon. So you have the authority of Paul and you have the character of Philemon. So that Paul is able to say, I am confident because of who you are in Christ, Philemon. I am confident because of who you are in the kingdom of God and because what God has done with you. I am confident that you will do what I ask you. Because the authority of Paul and the character of Philemon. So let's bring this into this room right now. You still have the authority of Christ. And then you have the character of His followers. Do you think that Jesus could write a letter to us saying, confident of your obedience? I would like to say yes. I would like to say that Christ could write whatever letter He wanted to and that... He could write in there, Spence, confident in your obedience, I'm sure you'll do X, Y, Z, and that there would be no concern whatsoever. But that really addresses the character of us. I was at a church event 2009. And the speaker was talking about the plans we make for our lives. And the things that we do with our lives. And how we just assume that we know what we're going to do. And he framed it in the way of our lives is really just one big story. And the choices we make, the decisions we make, the paths we take, the, the jobs we have, the people we marry. All these things are telling a story. He said, but what would it look like if instead of you writing the story of your life, that Christ wrote the story of your life. So he made a challenge and it was something that I accepted and that I have um, been reminded of on a regular basis. He said, take a blank piece of paper. On that blank piece of paper, just sign your name at the bottom and date it. Leave the entire blank paper. Just leave it all blank. And that's signifying that you're not going to be the one saying, this is what I'm going to do with my life and how I'm going to do my life and where I'm going to go with my life, etc., etc., etc. I'm going to let God write in the story of this life. I'm just going to sign it and say, God, whatever you write in, that's what I'm going to do. Now, I'm, I'm more imperfect than many of you in this room. But that's been a desire of my heart to say... God, I don't know what story you have for me, but I'm going to let you tell the story and you write the story and I just want to live the story that you're writing. There's a, there's a character of Philemon that is on display and then there is the authority of Paul that is on display and it really hits me because I just think to myself how many times I am unwilling to forgive or overlook or look past small offenses from brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, how many times do we see churches that split or fight over dumb stuff? And I know, it's, I know it matters. I know it matters to those that are in the middle of it. 
Oh, but there's so many times that we fight over things that are not eternal. And we fight over things that are selfish driven. And we fight over things that only make an outside watching world say, we don't need any of that. Because we argue and we fight. So Paul, he's writing to Philemon and he says, I'm confident of your obedience. And that just not only makes me chuckle because I can think you can just imagine Philemon and he's reading the letter and Matt I don't know what it looked like I don't know if Onesimus is standing right there in front of him and Philemon is reading this he's looking at Onesimus he's reading looking at Onesimus he's reading it down and then all of a sudden he gets to the point that Paul says I'm confident your obedience and he's like so it's not even my decision I mean I don't even get to say so in the matter I mean it's not like I get to decide or I get to determine no Paul's already said either you're going to do this or you are going to be disobedient it wasn't like Paul said let me give you three options, A, B, and C, and you pick which one you want. No, Paul said, this is what obedience looks like, and anything else is disobedience. You know, so many times that's what we find in the Word of God. God's Word says, this is what obedience looks like. And anything else, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%, anything else that we try to substitute with is not obedience. It's disobedience. If you come into our house, there's the add-on that was there when we bought it. There's three steps that come up into the kitchen area. And I love those three steps because I can sit on those three steps and I can set eye level with the kitchen floor. And I've got these little bond servants <laughs> whose chore is to sweep the kitchen floor. And I have been, I've been 15, 13, and 12 before. And I understand how this works. And I get it. So in the chore, it says, sweep the kitchen once a day or as needed. Dad's not a dummy. He understands a family of eight might be needed more than once a day. So I will come in there and that is where I will play with the four-year-old and the two-year-old. But that's also where I can get eye level and I can see the grains of dirt. And I can see where they swept and where they didn't sweep. And I can see how good of a job they did. And I will call in whichever young man, whichever bond servant has, has that chore. And I will say, did you sweep the floor? Yes, daddy. Did you sweep it completely? Well, see, they call sweeping the floor, sweeping half of it. They don't call sweeping the floor underneath the table, over there by the stove, underneath the refrigerator. They call sweeping the floor the easy stuff, right? But if you're a parent, you understand the floor is not just in the center walkway. There is a floor underneath the kitchen table. And there is a floor in right in front of the refrigerator. And there is a floor over by the pantry. There is floor everywhere. And when it says floor, it means all of the floor. And they look at me. And they grumble. And they whine. And they complain. And they stomp. And they move. The reality is they weren't obedient. And 50% is still disobedience. 70% is still disobedience. And we do that with our children, and we can think about that with our children, but how many times does their father do the same thing with God? I'm at 50%, and I call that good enough. That's not obedience, that's just partial disobedience. 
oh, well, you know what? I think I'm going to put a little gray over here. I think I'm going to negotiate. I think I'm going to decide. I think I'm going to make this what I want it to be. And yet when I come to the Word of God, it tells me this is obedience and everything else is disobedience. And then I come to a verse like I've already read in verse 21. And Paul writes, confident of your obedience. And I find myself feeling convicted because I wonder how many times due to my disobedience Christ couldn't write that about me. And then I find myself praying not for myself only but for myself and for all of us even in this room saying God may you make us a people. May you make us a people at Wellston that this is true about us. That it doesn't matter what the offense, it doesn't matter what the wrong, it doesn't matter what the the, the division is, it doesn't matter about how much Satan may try to divide us and distract us and tear us apart. We are a people. And that if anything else, Christ can say, I am confident in their obedience. Oh, what could God do with a church body? that was so devoted to Him and His kingdom that that could be said about us. That He was confident in our obedience. So, the rest of Philemon, you can add, you can hear people put ideas out there. I'm not really sure. It doesn't really tell us what happened. It doesn't tell us how Philemon responded. It doesn't tell us what happened uh, happily ever after. It doesn't give us a part two. But it does give us an example of what it looks like to be wronged, to be expected, commanded, to be reconciled. And it gives us some points of conviction to say, what is my character like? Does Christ have that confidence in me? Other thoughts? Questions? Pushbacks? Theological ruminations?